in the southern kingdom of Judah, as good as they were, and nothing compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the, the good kings are measured to David, who was the, the best king Judah had. But even David pales in comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even David had his flaws and his shortcomings and his sinful nature. But when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to this earth, he will rule in perfection. There won't be anything that the, you know, that the media could point a finger at. There would be nothing to impeach him. There would be nothing to demote him. There would be nothing to accuse him of. He will be the perfect ruler, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What a blessing it is to know him as our Savior. What a blessing it is to know that our trust is not in man. Our trust is not in politicians or the princes of this world. Our trust is in the Lord. As the psalmist said, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings chapter 3. 2 Kings chapter 3. And we are still this week in the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, Again, um, after Solomon, the kingdom split in two. Um, Rehoboam took the southern kingdom of Judah um, with just um, two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And then Jeroboam took the northern kingdom of Israel um, with ten tribes. If you remember, Jeroboam was promised um, by the prophet Ahijah that if he obeyed the Lord and obeyed his commands, that the northern kingdom would be blessed just like David's kingdom could have. So that's, that, that was the option he had. We know that he didn't obey the Lord. He set up idol worship, and Israel never recovered spiritually from that. So we're in the northern kingdom. We're looking at a king today called Jehoram. Again, I'm not going to put all of these, uh, go through all of the the names of the kings every week because we'll be here forever. Um, But last week, we looked at Ahaziah. He was Ahab's son. We referred to him as the king of fallen. If you remember, he fell um, through the lattice, um, and was sick, but we, he never recovered from that sickness. But we looked at the, the more of a fall in terms of a spiritual nature. Like I say, he never recovered from that fall. And his brother, Jehoram, then takes the throne. Jehoram means Jehovah is exalted. And you think, finally, you know, finally, somebody comes to the throne who's got a name like Jehovah is exalted. And you think, why would Ahab give his son such a name? Um, It it, it makes no sense. So the question today is, is, does this man live up to his name? 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 1 to 3, soon put the idea of this man living up to his name to bed. It says, now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years, and he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and his, like his mother, for he put away the image of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therefrom. Father, we thank you again for this day, for this time together, and for this opportunity to come around you a word. And Lord, we just pray that you would help us to learn from the examples of the characters of the Old Testament, Lord, good or bad, that we might understand that 
that you are still working in Jehoram's life, even though he was a sinful man. You uh, put enough people in his path for him to see uh, you were work. You, you, you put enough um, uh, opportunities in his life for him to put things right and to accept you uh, as his God. But Lord, unfortunately, we see that, that never happened. But that just reminds us of the world today. There's still plenty of evidence of your existence. There's still plenty of opportunity to reach a lost and dying world with the gospel of Christ. But just like Jehoram, the world rejects the truth. So Father, we pray that you would help us to understand that you were working in our lives, even when we might not see it or feel it. And we're just thankful, Lord, like we sang earlier, of, of your faithfulness towards us. So Lord, we just ask today that you'd speak to our hearts through the word once again. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, Jehoram lives in quite an incredible time because by this point, um, Elijah has been taken up into heaven um, via a whirlwind, um, and Elisha has taken on Elijah's mantle. Now, what was significant about Elisha taking on the mantle of Elijah? What was significant about Elisha? What did Elisha do different to Elijah? So Elisha asked for something specific from Elijah. A double portion. And you see that recorded in scripture. Uh, and, and a lot of commentators agree, even Jewish commentators say that they, they work out that Elijah performed about eight miracles. Elisha performed about eight, um, 16 miracles. Uh, in another commentary, I, I, I saw um, they actually worked out that the prophecies that I, I Elijah made to um, Ahab and, and, and various other people um, included in the miracles were about um, 14. And then when they worked out Elisha's miracles and prophecies, it came to about 28. Um, so the truth of the matter is Elisha did twice as much in terms of miracles as Elijah. And I'm saying that to say this. Elisha ministered during Jehoram's reign. Um, so, again, when you look at Ahab and, and, and Elijah ministering during Ahab's reign, you're like, why, why would you just pay attention to what Elijah was doing and what Elijah was saying? Now, Elisha did twice as much as Elijah. So you kind of think, why would Jehoram not live up to his name? Here's the thing, Christian, you have a name. Regardless of what your first name is, Regardless of what your middle name is, regardless of what your surname is, you have a name. That name is a Christian. You have a name to live up to. Jehoram did not live up to his name. He did not exalt Jehovah. He did not give God the glory when it was due, even though he saw miracle after miracle after miracle, heard prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, and saw those prophecies by Elisha being fulfilled, he did not exalt the Lord. So Christian, do you live up to your name? Because you have a name that the Lord has given you. And the world watches us. Now, Jehoram's kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, must have looked at their king and thought, that makes no sense. He says that he exalts God, but he worships Baal. Oh, he may have removed the image, but the, the shadow that sin had ca was cast by his father and mother before him, 
still has an impact and an influence on him. The shadow that was cast by Jeroboam right back at the, the, the inception of the northern kingdom is still having an impact on Jehoram. So the people said, he says that he exalts God, but his life and his words and his actions speak something different. He is indeed the king of confusion. What we see in Jehoram's life are several victories. Now, there are armies that come against um, uh, Israel, and we're going to look at three of those. We're going to look at Moab and Syria twice, and they come against Israel, and three times, supernaturally, God gives the victory. But Jehoram refuses to live up to his name, refuses to exalt God, to worship God, to give God the glory that he is due for the prayer that has been answered. So we're going to look at three victories. We've got a lot of chapters to cover. Okay, we are, we are probably going to go through six chapters of scripture. We're not going to read it all. Um, so we will kind of skip over a lot. But if you can, when you have time, read from chapters 3 to chapter 10, and you will kind of get a full picture then of what was going on in Jehoram's reign during these 12 years. So first of all, the first victory we see is over Moab in chapter 3. And this victory really speaks about the provision of God. Um, Jehoram, um, his first, I, I suppose, battle that he faces as the king of Israel is when Moab rebels. In verse 4, it says that the king of Moab uh, was a sheep master. Now, the king of Moab had to pay a tribute. Um, and that tribute was 100,000 lambs and 100,000 rams. Um, so every year he paid this tribute to Israel. Um, now, with Ahab gone, Maybe he sees an opportunity as a weakness in the throne. Ahaziah has only lasted two years. He wasn't as strong as his, as his father. Now with Jehoram coming on the scene, um, maybe there's an opportunity to rebel. If you remember, remember Ahaziah and Jehoshaphat? When we looked at Jehoshaphat, uh, the king of compromise, remember he made a pact with Ahaziah and they sent ships off and all of those ships were destroyed. So this is all going on now uh, leading up to this. And maybe the king of Moab thinks, ha, 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 ha. This is my opportunity. I don't want to pay 100,000 rams and 100,000 lambs um, every year. Um, now's my opportunity to rebel. And that's exactly what happens. Um, after David uh, had conquered the Moabites, they became the servants. But they rebelled against Israel and Jehoram sets up an alliance. He sets up an alliance with the king of Edom and the king of Judah. So he sets up this alliance and he gets uh, Jehoshaphat involved again. And, and you know, you'd think, Jehoshaphat, really? No. We looked at Jehoshaphat a couple of weeks ago. If you remember, Jehoshaphat strengthened himself. Then he aligned himself with Ahab in marriage. And then he joined himself with Ahaziah in the trade deal. And you think, why? Are you doing this now? But he joins up with Jehoram again. Now, um, don't forget, um, there's a family relationship here because Ahab's daughter has married Jehoshaphat's son. Um, so, you know, this is 
Jehoram is kind of family uh, through marriage to Jehoshaphat. But when um, they come to um, come up against Moab, um, it says um, that the king of Israel, in verse 9 of chapter 3, the king of Israel went and the king of Judah and the king of Edom and they fetched a compass of seven days journey and there was no water for the host and for the cattle that followed them. And the king of Israel said, Alas, that the Lord hath called thee, uh, these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. How incredible. Jehoram wants nothing to do with God. Jehoram has said, hey, my God is Baal. Now, he may have, he may have taken down the images. He may have removed um, uh, the image that Ahab set up, but he didn't remove the image that was set up in his heart. So Jehoram is still worshiping Baal. He's still following Baal. He's still following after the sins of um, Jeroboam. But now things don't go Jehoram's way. So what does he say? Oh, it's God's fault. But you don't believe in God. And it, nothing's changed. That's exactly what the world does today. It's God's fault. Yeah, but you, you don't believe in God. Even the atheist will blame God. You know, understand this. The atheist hates God. Why do you hate something that doesn't exist? I don't hate unicorns or leprechauns or aliens. Why? Because they don't exist. So why does the atheist hate God so much? If he doesn't exist, what's the big deal? But every man knows that there's a God. It's interesting that Jehoram just follows the exact example of the world around us today. It's God's fault. But you don't believe in God. Oh, God has brought us here today. No, you arranged this little alliance. You got the king of Edom together. You've dragged Jehoshaphat into this again. You've come up against Moab. And now there's no water. You're starting to panic. But the first person you blame is God. So you say, right, we need, we need a prophet. That's all we need. We need to get a prophet. Now, this probably goes back, and you're probably casting your mind back to Jehoshaphat and Ahab, when Ahab said, right, we'll get all the prophets together. And Jehoshaphat said, is there anyone else here? Oh, yeah, Micaiah, but I hate him. Now, they need a prophet. And they find one by the name of Elisha. And Elisha basically just says to Jehoram, you get back to the prophets that your father uses. You know, when you just go to the yes men, and you go to those who tell you what you want to hear. Here's the issue. The world wants to hear that everything will be okay. The world wants to hear that everybody can do what they want and have no consequences whatsoever. But that's not what the world needs to hear. So you see, the prophets of God who were true to the word of God would tell even the kings who had such influence and such power exactly what they needed to hear, not what they wanted to hear. And the world today wants to hear that everything will be okay and everybody can do what's right in their eyes and there'll be no consequence. But that's not what they need to hear. They need to hear that there is a God that will judge sin and if that sin is not dealt with here on earth, that sin will have to be paid for by them uh, and will have to be atoned for by them. And if it's paid for by them, then the payment will take place in hell. 
What they need to hear is the fact that Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world so that their sins could be dealt with here on earth and be forgiven so that their home could be heaven. But that's not what people want to hear. I don't believe in God, but it's his fault when everything goes wrong. God is going to show his provision. You know, they've said, oh, there's no water, there's no water. God has brought us here today. And then Elisha steps on the scene. And even though he says, I shouldn't have anything to do with you, you wicked king. But, he says, because of this man here, because of Jehoshaphat. And that's what Elisha said. That he said, because of Jehoshaphat, uh, in verse 14, um, it's not because of you, Jehoram. It's because of Jehoshaphat that the Lord is going to do this. It's incredible that even though Jehoshaphat is not where he's meant to be, it still seems like his heart is right with the Lord. And 1 Corinthians says, what, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. The only reason Elisha was given this king the time of day was because of the presence of Jehoshaphat. And he had a respect for Jehoshaphat. Remember now, Jehoshaphat is from the southern kingdom of Judah. Elisha's ministry is in the northern kingdom of Israel. But he knows what Jehoshaphat's heart is like. This king is a challenge to us to honor the Lord with our actions, our attitudes, and our choices. And Elisha agrees to pray for water, specifying that he would do so for the sake of Jehoshaphat. Jehoram did nothing to earn this victory. So what happens in the rest of chapter 3, the Lord says, right, look, this is what you need to do. You need to go to this area. You need to dig some ditches. Don't do anything else, and there'll be plenty of water for you. There was more than enough water. In fact, there was so much water that when the Moabites looked out the next day, uh, as the sun caught the water, it looked like the fields was just filled with blood. So the Moabites thought, hey, the Israelite army have destroyed themselves. Let's just go in nonchalantly and, uh, uh, and take the victory. And as they did that, their guard was down and Israel conquered their enemy. Jehoram had a great victory, not because of him, but because of the Lord. And the Lord provided far above and beyond what um, they needed. Jehoram did nothing to earn his victory, but he doesn't give God the glory. In fact, he reacts in such a wicked, wicked way um, that even um, the Israelites, uh, the, the other kings, the um, the king of Edom and Jehoshaphat um, were uh, um, I don't know the word is they weren't happy with them they were disgusted that's the word I'm looking for they were disgusted by the actions of um, what Jehoram did because it says in the last verse um, that after there was great indignation against Israel because Jehoram destroyed Moab and the cities, and he did it in such a way that it disgusted um, the king of Edom and Jehoshaphat. He did nothing to earn that victory, and he did not give God the glory for the victory. 
So what happened after that victory? In chapter 4, um, we have the miracle of the widow and the pot of oil. Um, then in chapter 4, we also have the Shunammite woman, um, where Elisha says that this woman's going to have a child. That's the woman, her and her husband, if you remember, built a little chamber for Elisha to, uh, to come and stay at their house. And then when the child is about four or five, the child dies, and Elisha raises that child from the dead. Um, then... Uh, we also see that he makes poisonous food harmless, and he feeds 100 men with just 20 loaves of bread. In chapter 5, Elisha cleanses Naaman the leper. Um, and this is a miracle that even the Lord Jesus Christ referred to in Luke chapter 4. In chapter 6, um, the school of the prophets, remember one of the prophets dropped an axe head into the water, and Elisha raises uh, and again, we, we recognize the fact that metal doesn't float, um, and he raises that axe head to the surface of the water. I'm saying that just to say this. I'm just trying to give you a context of what is going on during Jehoram's reign. So Jehoram is on the throne, and Elisha is performing all of these miracles. So in chapter 6, then, we see the next victory. And again, this is um, a, the Syrian uh, king, Ben-Hadad, sends in, um, I, I guess it's like stealth mode. It's almost like special forces. We're going to just send in a small band of men to kind of, not a full army, but just a small band of men we're going to send in. But what happens um, during this is the fact that... Um, God told Elisha exactly where these men were going to be. And in verse 8, uh, it says that the king of Syria warred against Israel. This is um, uh, 2 Kings chapter 6 and verse 8. The king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. And this happened not once, but twice. Um, Syria is on the warpath with Israel. Uh, the king of Syria has made plans to send a small band of men to set up headquarters in a certain area to prepare for battle. But the Lord reveals to Elisha exactly where these men are going to be. And Elisha just warns the king. Um, we recognize the fact that God sees everything. He knows the secrets of every man, nothing is revealed or secret from the Lord. Shall not God search this out, Psalm 44, 21? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart. With Elisha's up-to-date information, not only does the king survive, not only does Jehoram survive, but so does Israel. Um, this victory is talking about God's protection. Did Jehoram deserve protection? No, he didn't. Jehoram, because of his wickedness, deserved exactly what was coming to him. Um, and again, if you remember, when Elijah prophesied to Ahab, he said your family would be cut off. And Jehoram is going to be the last in that um, Omri's dynasty. Omri, Ahab, Ahaziah, and then Jehoram. God didn't have to protect Jehoram. But I, I can't remember. I think it was Thursday night we were talking about, um, yeah, you know, how even the lost 
fail to recognize the fact that they receive a blessing from God every single day. How do they receive a blessing from God? Because he provides enough air for everyone to breathe. That even the wicked, even the lost, even those who are atheists receive God's blessing every single day. And are unaware of it. You know, the king of Israel sent spies then to the places that Elisha spoke about. And the Israeli army was protected. It was preserved. Uh, and um, they, they weren't defeated because of this. Um, it's incredible to think that, um, you know, the, the, the king of Syria didn't give up because of this. He was persistent. He was thwarted on a few occasions. But he's like, right, do you know what? This hasn't worked, but we're going to try something else. He's going to change tactics in a minute. Um, the, the small band of men going in and setting up camp hasn't worked, so he's going to send a bigger host. He's going to get Elisha, because this guy has really done his head in. So he's going to get Elisha, and he's going to take him out, and he's going to send a bigger force in. He doesn't stop. Can I say this? The enemy doesn't stop today. You know, we, have you ever noticed that you're like, oh, I've got a victory over one area of my life? Yes! You know, the devil was tempting me and he was banging on my door and I, you know, I kind of barricaded it and I got that victory and he's like, yes! And then he finds another way to, like, to, to sneak in around the, the barricade you put up and he just changes tactic. You know, when the enemy can't sneak in, sometimes it'll be a full, full-on attack. When he can't get there with a full-on attack, we'll see in a little while that he surrounds the city and he'll try and starve you out. The devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about the earth, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Resist steadfast. Don't be surprised when the devil changes his tactics. Don't be surprised when the enemy changes tact. Don't be surprised. Just remain steadfast. Israel saved themselves from a terrible slaughter because oh, they listened to God's man and they obeyed him. Oh, we got a lot to get through, right? Um, but what happened then is uh, the king of Syria says, right, I want Elisha, because they knew it was Elisha that was passing on the secret information. And he's like, is there somebody, you know, is there a spy in my camp? And they're like, to, to, to Ben Harad, no, it's Elisha. It's the prophet of God. He's like, right, okay, let's take out Elisha. So they send a bigger group of men. They send chariots and horses. And it says that they send a great host in verse 14 of chapter 6. They send a, a, a bigger army to come and take Elisha. Do you know what that proves to me? That proves to me that the man of God was more powerful than the king of Israel. They just sent a, sent a smaller band to take care of the king, but they send an entire host to take care of the man of God. You as a believer in Christ are far more frightening to the devil than any politician in this world, any leader in this world. Why? Because most of the politicians and the leaders of this world are already in the devil's pocket. If they don't know Christ as their savior, that's exactly where they are. Not saying that all politicians are wicked. Just most of them. But Elisha was far more powerful than the king. 
And that's shown by the army that Ben-Hadad sends against him. And when Elisha's servant, Elisha's servant is not Gehazi at this time now, because if you remember, Gehazi's gone after the, uh, the whole incident with wanting Naaman's treasures. Uh, Elisha has another servant, and the servant's like, I can't believe the host. I've just gone out. I've seen the host. I've got to go out. And you want to see the Syrian army? I can't believe it. What are we going to do? I, I'm panicking because, you know, there's a, there's a big army, and why are they going to come against us? And Elisha, what are we going to do? And he's like Corporal Jones from Dad's army, and he's like running around saying, don't panic, Captain Manorin. Don't panic, Captain Manorin. And Elisha just says, fear not. Fear not. For they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha performs two miracles here. In the one miracle, he opens the servant's eyes. And in the other miracle, he blinds the Syrian army. And when the servant's eyes are open, he's like, oh, wow. Oh, I thought that was a big host that had come against Dothan. But as he looked to the hills, He saw the Lord's army. And it says, the Lord opened the eyes of the young man in verse 17, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. It's incredible that Jehoram didn't deserve this protection. But Elisha is about to teach the king a valuable lesson. The eyes of the Syrians are blinded. That's what happens next. And what Elisha does, he walks into the middle of that army and says, Boys, follow me. I know who you're looking for. They were looking for him. I know who you're looking for. Follow me. So the Syrian army blindly follows Elisha. Elisha takes him straight into the center of Samaria. Straight into the center of enemy territory. And then he's like, okay, guys, open your eyes. (laughs) You ever done that where somebody says, right, close your eyes. Come on, follow me. I'll take you in here. Can you imagine the look on their faces when their eyes were actually open? They're like, oh, we're in trouble. You know, we came against these people. We came to take these guys out. And yet, we're smack bang in the middle. We're surrounded. We are in trouble. And Jehoram says to Elisha, uh, and the king of Israel, verse 21, said unto Elisha, when he saw them, my father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? Uh, The reason that question is asked twice, because it shows the eagerness of Jehoram. Think about it. The enemy has just landed in his lap. We saw what he did in Moab. We saw that the death and destruction uh, that was left in Jehoram's wake after God had already given him a victory that didn't need to go above and beyond uh, the victory that God had given him. So we see the bloodlust in Jehoram's life. And he's like, let's take these out. Let's destroy them. Let's get rid of them. And Elisha says, no, let's feed them. Oh, sorry, what? Let's feed them. Let's show them kindness. Did Elisha do this because of Naaman? Because of that bond that had already been set up? I, I, I don't know. It doesn't say. And Maybe he did. Maybe this was just, again, an opportunity for Jehoram to live up to his name. To show kindness to these men so that Syria go, oh, wow. Maybe there is a God in Israel. We've seen what that God did with Naaman. We've seen what that God has done through Elisha. We've seen what that God has now done through Jehoram. 
A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Elisha prepares food and water for the Syrians and provides for them to return to their homes. You know, the events of this story are just a picture of God's grace to us. We don't deserve his provision. We don't deserve his protection. But God provides for each and every sinner, even those that hate him, that outwardly reject him, that want nothing to do with him. Grace is still afforded to them, whether they accept it or not. This particular battle was over. But the war wasn't done yet. Like I said, when the devil can't get to you, he'll just change his tactics. And now we see the Syrians' tactics change. And the final victory over Syria talks about promotion. So uh, we see in chapter 6 and verse 24 that after this, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his hosts and went up and besieged Samaria. So what this means is is that Ben-Hadad, he didn't just send a small group of men. He didn't just send a host. He basically went all out and said, right, okay, let's send everybody. And they besieged Samaria. If you remember when um, Samaria was built up, you remember we, we looked at that with Omri, when Samaria was built up, it was... High up on the hillside, it was a walled city, it was well protected. So they just surrounded it and said, okay, we'll starve you out. And that's exactly what happens in the city. Um, and do you know what the Lord said to his people? This should not have caught Israel by surprise. Because in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, the Lord said... I will bring this on you. I will either bring a nation against you in terms of military defeat, or I'll bring a famine upon the land. Had King Jehoram called his people to repentance, remember the similar thing happened to Hezekiah, which I know is, is further on, which I haven't come to that yet, but a similar thing happened to him when Sennacherib had surrounded the city, and Hezekiah calls upon the Lord. Had Jehoram lived up to his name and exalted the Lord and called upon the Lord and said to the, 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 the city of Samaria, okay, guys, we need to come in national repentance. There's two Chronicles 7.14. If my people, which are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. Then will I forgive their sin. Then will I heal their land. But Jehoram doesn't do that. In his pride, he's like, ah, the city is... It's undefeatable. They can't get in. You know they couldn't get in, but neither could anybody get out. So what happens then is people are reduced to eating unclean food. It says in verse 25 uh, that this great famine in Samaria, that uh, they besieged the city until an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver, and a fourth part of a cab of dung's dev, uh, of dev's dung, sorry, was sold for five pieces of silver. A donkey's head was sold in today's price of silver for five hundred pounds. Dev's poo was selling for fifty quid. You couldn't get much lower than that, could you? Oh, you could. Because not only were they resorted to eating 
donkeys' heads and animal excrement. They actually resorted to cannibalism. Because as Jehoram is walking on the city walls and maybe thinking, we got this covered. There's no way they're going to get inside. He hears uh, some uh, commotion below. And the king said to the woman, What aileth thee? In verse 28, and she answered, This woman said unto me, Give thy son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and did eat him. And I said unto her, On the next day, Give thy son that we may eat him. And she hath hid her son. You know, God even predicted that in Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 29, he said, And ye shall eat the flesh of your sons, and the flesh of your daughters ye shall eat. This was if Israel disobeyed the Lord, if they didn't follow his commands, if they weren't obedient to his word. And that's not God's fault. That's the sinfulness of people. God alone, we saw God provide the water in the fields of Moab with, with, with the, the men, do, the armies doing nothing other than digging some ditches. So the Lord could have provided a banquet in that room. We saw Elisha feeding 100 men with 20 loaves of bread. We didn't see it, but we mentioned it um, as we were skipping over those chapters. So the Lord could have provided quite easily. But the king refused to live up to his name. So does he fall on the floor and say, Oh, Lord, forgive me for being such a wicked man. No, in verse 30 when he says... Elisha, Elisha, like father, like son. Ahab said, Elijah, you are the one that troubleth Israel. And Elijah's like, "Mm -mm -mm. you are the one who troubles Israel because of your sinfulness. It wasn't Elisha's fault that Samaria was going through this, this issue. It was Jehoram's fault. But again, it's the blame game. It's just blame somebody else. It's your fault. Even when we know we're in the wrong, we still want to blame somebody else because it just justifies our actions. It's easy for Jehoram to say, yeah, it's Elisha's fault because then he doesn't have to admit, hey, this is all my doing. So what does he want to do? He wants to, he wants to kill Elisha. So he says, then he said in verse 31, go do and more also to me if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on him this day. He says to his servant, go and get Elisha and take his head off his shoulders. So that's what they do. But the prophet wasn't worried or upset or panicked. And as the, the, the servant bangs on the door to try and get into Elisha's house, Elisha says, oh, your master's not too far behind you. He's on his way. He wants to see the gory death of uh, the prophet. But Elisha's not bothered. And Elisha then gives a prophecy in verse 7. And he says to the king, Tomorrow, you will be able to buy all the food you want for next to nothing. And the king's servant said, That's not possible. And Elisha says, You'll see it. But because of your unbelief, you'll not even get to experience it. You'll see it with your eyes but you won't get the benefit from it. How did God then bring this great victory for uh, Jehoram? What did he do? The Syrian army is encamped around Samaria. The Syrian army is too big a force for the Israelites to take on head on. So what does God use to defeat the Syrian army? A noise and four lepers. They hear the sound of chariots in the night and think that the Israelites are coming upon them and they flee. 
the four lepers and outcasts of society wandered into the city and camp because they said, we're not allowed in Samaria where there's not any food anyway. We may as well give ourselves to the Syrians and it'll just be better for us to die. They wandered into the city and camp and they're like, there's nobody here. The tents were full of all the provisions. There was more food than they could ever possibly wish to care to do anything with. And they could have kept that to themselves. You know, the, the city could have just stayed there blissfully unaware that there was plenty of food out in the camp. But the lepers go back and they do the right thing. How incredible that there was more integrity in four outcasts of society who weren't even allowed to go into the city to partake of the ass's head and the dove's dung. But the Lord used them in such a way that we're still talking about it today. Um, Elisha's prophecy is fulfilled. The servant is standing at the gates of the city and the people are so excited that as they head out for the spoil, the, the servant is actually trampled to death. He sees the blessings of God but never gets to experience it. You know, it's incredible. Um, the two kings, chapter 7 and verse 9, is like the gospel in a nutshell. The, the lepers said one to another, what do we do not well this day of good tidings, and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now therefore come that we may go and tell the king's household. They had good news to share, and they shared it. Can I say this in my honest opinion? There are a certain amount of people in this story that have promoted the lepers being one of them. We have been promoted to glory. Oh, not yet, you might say. Yeah, yet. When does eternal life start? Does eternal life start when we die or when we accept Christ as our Savior? We've already been promoted to glory in that sense. So why keep that to ourselves? The lepers had good news to share. They said, if we don't tell, some mischief's going to come upon us. We need to share the gospel. Jehoram did not live up to his name. In chapter 8, Elisha announced Hazael of Syria to be the king to take over from Ben-Hadad. And when Hazael comes against Jehoram... Jehoram is injured in the battle, and eventually Jehu, his captain, fulfills the prophecy of Elijah that was given to Ahab, and Ahab's dynasty comes to an end. Jehu kills Jehoram. He saw three great victories, one of provision, one of protection, one of promotion, and yet he did not exalt the Lord. He did not give God the glory where it was due. What a waste. Elisha lived during Jehoram's reign. He heard Elisha speak. He saw Elisha prophesy. He saw Elisha's miracles. And yet still refused to exalt the Lord. Guys, please don't get disappointed when people don't accept the Lord after our first witness encounter. Because they rejected him then. They rejected him when Christ walked on this earth. And they continue to reject him today. Elisha. Elisha even performed a miracle after he was dead. 
He raised two people from the dead. If Elijah only is recorded, he raised one. Elisha raised two. I mean, he was alive when he was dead. The man fell into Elisha's grave, touched his bones, and got up again. You need to be careful where you're buried in Israel. <laughs> That's why in some cemeteries, they've got revolving doors. My point is, Jehoram was a witness to all of this. But he never exalted the Lord. He didn't do what was right. He didn't live up to his name. If you were a child of God, you've got a name. Yeah, it's a lot to live up to. Because we represent Christ on this earth. We are a picture of him. God has given us the provision we need to preach the gospel. He's given us the protection we need to live a life for him. I understand that we might think that when this life is over, we've been promoted. We've already been promoted because we've been promoted from the man who was stuck in the mighty clay to the man that has his feet planted on the solid rock. We've been promoted from a child of the devil to a child of God. We've been promoted from a lost sinner to a saved person. We've been promoted from nothing to everything. Jehovah refused to give God glory. Can I just say this today? Live up to your name. Because it represents somebody so incredible that he deserves our all. Father, we thank you again for this day, for this time together, and for this opportunity to come around your word. Father, I'm so thankful for the way in which you work in our lives. Even when we don't see it behind the scenes, and you bring people into our lives that just are there at the right moment at the right time for the right reason and we just thank you lord for that so father i prayed you would help us to live up to the name of the of christian that you would help us to be a light to a dark and desperate world that you would help us to share the gospel with all those we come in contact with and father we be mindful to give you the glory to exalt you when we recognize you a provision protection and promotion in our lives we pray and ask these things in christ's name amen Amen. All right, let's stand and sing our closing hymn together.
wonder if Julian will close us in a word of prayer. Thank you, Julian. Bless us, we pray. Be with us until we meet again later this day. In Jesus' name.